0: Today, on The Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. The uh, trial has wrapped up now. The uh, trial of former uh, police officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, both sides have rested their case in the murder trial. Uh, the former Minneapolis police officer charged in the death of George Floyd. Ed Donahue has some details.
1: Before resting, defense attorney Eric Nelson had to announce whether Chauvin would testify. I have repeatedly advised you that this is your decision and your decision alone, Right. Correct. Chauvin made the decision. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. Judge Peter Cahill asked,
0: Is this your
1: decision not to testify? It is, Your Honor. All right. Tape from Court TV. The risks for Chauvin were high. If he testified, prosecutors would cross-examine by using the video of the arrest of George Floyd and force Chauvin to explain why he kept pressing down on Floyd. But the jury could have also heard any remorse or sympathy he might feel. Closing statements are expected Monday. I'm Ed Donahue.
0: So what are the next steps in this situation? Uh, Please to welcome back to the program Andrew Fugali, who is a uh, criminal lawyer and lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, it's so good to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today.
1: My pleasure, Bill. Good
0: to be back. I I guess the big takeaway yesterday was uh, was, uh, Chauvin deciding not to to testify in invoking the Fifth Amendment. Were were you surprised by that?
1: Not at all. Uh, I would have been shocked if he did testify. Um, His defense is pretty clear based on what the cross examinations were uh, uh, during the prosecution case. He's trying to raise a reasonable doubt that his actions uh, uh, caused or were a substantial cause uh, in George Floyd's death or uh, that what he was doing was reasonable in the course of his duties. I can't imagine that he would have had anything to say if he took the stand that could have added to that. And the flip side was the risk uh, would have been tremendous for him. Um, As was set out in your segment, he would have risked having the prosecution take him frame by frame through that video. Uh, And uh, that could have been and likely would have been pretty devastating for him.
0: Well, there's so many aspects of that, because I, I was running that through my mind as I was watching it yesterday as well, Andrew, and I just thought, uh, especially the testimony that they got from from the one forensics expert that basically said that, that Floyd was dead for three and a half minutes before uh, Chauvin took his knee off, uh, you know, th- 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 it, it could have been devastating to, to go through a Q&A in that circumstance.
1: Yeah, if you think about it, uh, you know, going frame by frame and and focusing on on those moments where he's not moving anymore, uh, and, and the prosecution asking Shoven repeatedly, okay, we're at the seven-minute mark now. He's not moved for a, a minute. Why are you still on him? Uh, and, and you can just sort of let your mind go with questions flowing from any possible answers that he's got. It never, it, it doesn't come out well for him any way you sort of think about it.
0: When you look at the time frame, uh, I was I. Getting some reaction from some folks who are kind of surprised by this. The prosecution took almost two weeks to present their case with their witnesses, etc. Uh, only two days for the defense. Uh, and uh, I'll talk about the logistics of that if we could, Andrew, from your experience in the courtroom. It, it, does the defense have to match everything that the prosecution brings up? To you know, uh, one for one, or are they just saying, "Well, this is our case. I don't care what you just heard. This is what we want you to believe in here now."
1: It doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, it's it's not out of the ordinary uh, and it's a good question that your listeners have because it's not intuitive. Uh, you would think that if you're mounting a defense you've got to match the prosecution step by step. That's not how uh, our system works. Uh, the prosecution has the burden of proving the case. Uh, so in almost all cases, uh, their case will be longer because it's their burden to meet. When you look at what the defense is doing, it's not just the amount of time that their case may take you also have to look at the questions and the evidence that gets elicited in the cross-examination uh, of the crown witnesses uh, and so uh, uh, frequently you'll have the defense evidence which there's no obligation on the defense to lead evidence as part of their case frequently that part of the case will be much shorter uh, than what the prosecution does
0: and it just seemed as if you know we all all we want to do here is is talk about well as you say protocol because that seemed to be the the, the thrust of some of the, uh, the the witnesses of the defense called is that look at he was simply following police protocol uh and the other about it is is as you say the cause of death and uh, i i guess the defense tactic at this stage andrew uh, was simply to say look at i know what they said but this is what our experts say and these guys are experts as well uh puts an awful lot of pressure on the jury to say okay it's which one's telling the truth here which one do we believe in
1: Yeah, and that's uh, something that's been a bit of a tension in the system throughout when you have these cases that end up as, uh, if if I could call it that, uh, a battle of the experts. Um, We put a lot of faith and and a lot of responsibility on the jury to sort out which experts they believe or, or whether for certain experts there's parts of their evidence that they'll believe Uh, And parts of it that they won't believe that that's something that the jury's entitled to do as well. Uh, You know, Bill, though, coming back to it, I think they're going to filter all of the expert evidence through what they see and feel uh, from that video.
0: It was interesting too, as just as they were finishing up the defense case. Anyway, uh, there was, and, and as you have told us before, Andrew, the, their their motivation here is to, to plant a seed of doubt, uh, reasonable doubt, in a situation like this. Uh, and they even brought up the possibility of carbon monoxide poisoning as a contributing factor to his death, uh, because he was on the ground, right by the exhaust pipe, I guess, of the vehicle. Uh, but the, the prosecution saw fit to actually bring one of their witnesses back uh, to basically counteract that and said, "Look at you know, was there any?" carbon monoxide in his system at all and basically to refute that and so get that out of the mind of the jury if that was going to be a, an idea of reasonable doubt no it's not happening at all so the, the, obviously obviously the chess match continues right up until the very end here doesn't it
1: yeah and, and i have to say i was surprised by the defense tactic there because they would have had access to the forensic reports through mm-hmm. disclosure um, and you would have thought that their expert would have been able to look at the reports and say, well, uh, uh, the evidence of carbon monoxide poisoning in his blood from the autopsy afterwards simply isn't there. Um, so it became a pretty low hanging fruit for the prosecution uh, to just recall their witness and, and shut that door. Um, so that's one aspect of the defense case I was a bit surprised at. Um, and it, the Crown or the prosecution is allowed to reply to lead reply evidence um, to things that come out in the defense case that aren't reasonably foreseeable for them to have dealt with. In their case, this certainly would have qualified as that, and um, I think they the prosecution handled that pretty quickly and effectively.
0: Andrew, how are both sides handling this weekend? I mean, as we said, closing statements, uh, and and again, for most of us, the only experience we get in the judicial system is what we see on TV uh, through Law & Order or whatever TV show we're watching about this. Uh, But clearly, what they say and the charge to the jury from the judge is going to be based a lot on these closing statements. Uh, Do they have a framework as to what they wanted to say, or is this going to be based on on the experts that came out? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking this is the pivotal chime right now, you know, as you mentioned, you've got this team of experts saying one thing, this team of experts saying the other. It's, it's really up, I guess, to the two uh, legal teams at this stage to try to sway the jury, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, realistically, when you're doing a big case like this in front of a jury, um, you're planning the entirety of your case to lead up to your closing submission. It it is your focal point as counsel. Uh, It's the only time you're truly talking to the jury uh, uh, face-to-face and directly addressing them. And so the counsel would have been, both sides would have been, uh, planning their closing arguments throughout the case. As each day of testimony unfolds, you keep uh, adding and rejigging your closing. And and now you've got this last weekend where everything's going to sort of settle in your mind as to what you want to say. And it's a weekend of a significant amount of work. And the added part of it is the judge gives a draft to counsel of what he's going to say to the jury so that you can incorporate that Mm. into your closing so that you don't say anything in your closing that the judge who follows both counsel would immediately refute uh, and make you look bad.
0: In a situation like that, uh, I'm, Wondering about the strategy here. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, I guess, for the prosecution at this stage. This is the video, ladies and gentlemen. That you've, it's, it happened right in front of you. You've watched it a thousand times now. You've received expert testimony. I mean, uh, they're basically, I say, believe your eyes. I guess uh, in in a situation like that. But how does the defense handle this? I mean, obviously they're going to try uh, to suggest that there was another cause of death. Uh, but but how do you characterize uh, Derek Chauvin? Do you does does the defense try to create sympathy for him, or do they as as I heard one lawyer suggest uh, the other day yeah maybe he he might be a, a miserable guy he might be a terrible human being but he was just uh, doing his job he was just following protocol uh so set set aside your personal feelings about what kind of a, a human being you think he is was he just doing his job it's an interesting tact on that and i wonder if if they'd actually go down that road
1: well you didn't he didn't take the stand so it's tough for you to appeal to the human part of him mm-hmm. um, if you if your client takes the stand you can look at the jury and say, look, you saw his, his emotion, or you saw his reaction to these questions. um, And that's something you can draw on. You don't have that here. If you're the Chauvin defense team. So what you're going to say about your client flows out of that second, uh, part of the defense strategy, which is uh, he had his training. He's acting reasonably uh, and, uh, and he's acting pursuant to that training. So any, Uh, Sort of identification of Chauvin's personality or, or his personal characteristics is going to be tied completely to that because you don't have much else that you're going to be able to hang your hat on.
0: And, and again, the personalities, I guess, as you say, absent of any testimony from Chauvin himself, it's going to be very difficult for the jury, I guess, to actually even go down that road because they have no idea what this guy is like, uh, simply by, you know, the way he sat in courtroom, I guess, over the last couple of days. Uh, talk to us again about process here, about the, the charge to the jury. Uh, Judge Peter Cahill, of course, has been overseeing this trial. Uh, I asked you before to evaluate. He seems to be pretty fair-minded and make sure that that all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted in situations like this. His job now is... is to basically guide the jury into making a decision. I thought it was rather interesting as he uh, let them go for the weekend. He talked about the fact that they're going to be sequestered starting Monday. And I think the quote I I pulled out of here was, he says, if I were you, I would plan for long and hope for short, Uh, which is, I think he's going to put a little more meat on the bones when he starts talking about the charge to the jury. But he basically has to walk them through about what they should not and should pay attention to, isn't he?
1: Well, there's two parts to it. Uh, uh, There's two broad parts to a charge to the jury. Uh, uh, that's, that will happen in any charge to the jury, this being no exception. Uh, first, he's got to set out what the law is on the charges uh, and also on anything, uh, types of evidence, uh, if there's any law surrounding them uh, that happened during the trial. And the second is he's got to organize the facts of the case and relate it to those issues, Flag for the jury, uh, what evidence is going to be relevant to which charge uh, uh, for them to consider. Uh, and so it's a very important part of the trial. Uh, it, it's the part where the jury essentially gets instructed on the law that they have to bring into their deliberations because the jurors are the finders of fact. They are, are the, uh, uh, the triers who determine what actually factually happened. And then they take those findings and they apply the law as given to them by the trial judge to their findings on each of the separate charge Charges, excuse me.
0: And, and both legal teams are going to be listening intently, obviously, to what uh, Judge Cahill says here, too, because uh, oftentimes, as we've seen historically, uh, appeals have been made based on the charge to the jury. In other words, we don't think the judge did a fair job, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, the pressure's on Judge Cahill, too, isn't it?
1: Yes, and uh, counsel will have their chance to object to the charge afterwards if there's anything that they find objectionable. Um, but it is, in historically, you're right. Um, In jury trials, the vast majority of times that there is an appeal that's successful, it's because of something that happens in the jury charge. So counsel are going to be uh, very much at the edge of their seat listening to the delivery of the charge uh, and determining afterwards whether there's anything that they're immediately going to want to have Judge Cahill correct.
0: And to that point, uh, this can take some time, can't it? This is not a four or five minute conversation that the judge is going to have with the jury. He's he's going to have to be very explicit about an awful lot of things here to make sure that he he doesn't misstep or it perceived to have made a misstep.
1: There's a tension between being thorough and going overboard and and taking too long and charging the jury. Like we just. We have to be cognizant that people don't have the attention spans to sit through, you know, hour upon hour of legal instructions. So uh, there, there is a, a, a tension there where the judge is going to have to thoroughly go through the law and the evidence as it relates to uh, the law while keeping it succinct enough that they can retain that information uh, and then go and do their job.
0: And, oh, to that point, I think you and I were talking about earlier in the in the proceedings, uh, I, I guess on two different occasions, some of the jurors were nodding off. So I'm sure the Judge Cahill is aware of that, too. But uh, the drama has been wrapped up exponentially here uh, with uh, what's happened over the last couple of days. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Andrew. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Uh, have a great weekend, and hopefully we can talk again next week. My pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. Take care. Andrew Fergali, of course, uh, who is a criminal lawyer himself in Toronto and a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto uh, talking about uh, the next phase of the, uh, the Chauvin trial, which will be happening starting on Monday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.